Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, October 4th. Today's big idea is on why a top Republican strategist and lobbyist thinks we are in a new Gilded Age. Everywhere he looks, Bruce Melman sees eerie parallels between the Gilded Age and today. Melman was the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Technology Policy under George W. Bush and the Policy Director for the House Republican Conference before that. He represents several blue-chip technology companies. He's known for producing insightful quarterly reports for his clients about the political climate. In his latest, which he's distributing today and shared with us early, he compares a spike of income inequality at the end of the 19th century to what we're seeing today. You saw income inequality spike, and the last time it was as high for the top 10% as it is today was the Gilded Age. Melman outlines several additional similarities like this and the lessons that might be learned from them over 36 PowerPoint slides. President Trump's win can be partly viewed as an aftershock of the Great Recession, just as the fear that lingered after market crashes in 1873 and 1893 impacted the outcome of multiple elections. Global trade powered tremendous economic growth in the United States at the dawn of the 20th century, But while there were a lot of winners, there were also a lot of losers. The country was intensely divided politically then, just as it is now. In 2016 and 2000, the candidate who lost the popular vote won the presidency. You know that. But the last time that happened was 1888 and 1876, during this period. Fear of disruption, backlash to change, and frustration with inequality, immigrants, and global trade all contributed back then to the sort of populist backlash we saw with Trump's victory last November. The Republican Party, which dominated national politics in the decades after the Civil War, splintered. The Industrial Age created new public policy problems and generated new political alliances. The way the populism was channeled was into real reforms, and populism became the progressive era. Women got the right to vote, direct election to senators, banning corporate contributions. Melman believes that now, as then, quote, the winner's circle is too small. Success in modern America is closely correlated to where you live, how much education you received, and which sector you work in. Against this backdrop, Melman thinks American politics has become less left versus right and more insider versus outsider. The globalist consensus that dominated through the Obama era is crumbling. And Melman is observing that with issues like race and immigration, the culture war is competing with a class war just like it did during the progressive era. You heard it from the Pat Buchanans of the world and, and you know, the, some of the Democrats like uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, but it's now becoming mainstream in, for sure, the Democratic Party and increasingly the Republican Party, questioning trade. The president campaigned and said we need to increase taxes on the rich. He thinks this struggle could realign the political parties. And that's the big idea. If you want to hear more about how politics today mirrors the Gilded Age, stay tuned until the end of this episode, when you can hear more from my conversation with Bruce Melman, the lobbyist and strategist. But for now, as always, here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one. Las Vegas authorities said the gunman who opened fire on a crowd of 22,000 concertgoers Sunday had planned extensively for the massacre. He placed security cameras around his 32nd-story hotel room, including in a hallway food cart, so he could see when officers were closing in. The shooter may have originally planned to target a different Vegas music festival held the previous weekend. He rented multiple condos overlooking the annual Life is Beautiful festival, which this year was headlined by Lord and Chance the Rapper. Paddock may have lost his nerve, the Daily Beast reports, or simply changed his plans and checked into the Mandalay Bay on September 28th. The shooter's live-in girlfriend, Mary Lou Danley, arrived last night at Los Angeles Airport from the Philippines and has been taken in for questioning. 
Number two, President Trump visited Puerto Rico on Tuesday as the territory struggled to recover from Hurricane Maria. The four-hour visit came amid accusations that the Trump administration did not act quickly enough to help Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands after the hurricane. During his trip, Trump repeatedly played down the destruction on the island, telling local officials they should feel, quote, very proud that they haven't lost hundreds of lives like in a, quote, real catastrophe such as Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Trump also complained that the small territory's disaster throws the national budget, quote, a little out of whack. Number three. Senate Intelligence Committee leaders are expected today to largely endorse the intelligence community's findings that Russia sought to sway the 2016 U.S. elections through a hacking and influence campaign. Senators Richard Burr, a Republican from North Carolina, and Mark Warner, a Democrat from Virginia, will give the public an interim status update on the investigation at a news conference this afternoon. In doing so, they'll be warning states preparing for the coming election season to be vigilant against similar threats. There's a sense among members of the Intelligence Committee, that today's news conference cannot wait until the probe is fully done to impress upon the public that Russia can and probably will act again. That's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, October 4th. This is where I usually wrap up, but today I'm going to share with you a part of the conversation I had yesterday with Republican strategist Bruce Melman. If you're listening on your Amazon Echo or Google Home device and you want to skip this part of the conversation, just say skip to your device. I'm here with Bruce Melman, a business strategist, Republican lobbyist. Why do you think that we are in a new Gilded Age? Well, thanks for having me. When you look at uh, the U.S. in around 1870 through about 1920, the parallels with today are eerie, how similar they are. First, both economies see changing economics. So back then it was going from agriculture to manufacturing in most jobs. These days, manufacturing to services. Uh, There was lingering fear from financial collapses. You saw transformative technology. Back then, you had energy and uh, the internal combustion engine. Now you have internet and cellular mobility. Back then, you had iconic innovators who built these dominant companies and amassed great fortunes. Uh, You've got that again today. Uh, You saw income inequality spike. And the last time it was as high for the top 10% as it is today was the Gilded Age. Similarly, immigrants as a percent of the U.S. population. It's over 14%. Last time it was that high, the Gilded Age. You saw in politics, you saw uh, a rich few increasingly dominating uh, spending to impact elections similar to today. You had red states and blue states election after election. Back then, the north was red, the south was blue. Now the coasts are blue and the middle is red. Uh, and of course, you had gridlock, which ultimately led to uh, to a populism. Obviously, yeah, the conditions are there that led to the populist movement back then. And today, you talk about fear of immigrants, fear of global trade, financial crisis. Do you see parallels in sort of the cycle that we're following too? You know, so far very much you do see similarities. You, you see uh, folks who are being economically displaced either by technology or by the changing nature of the economy often blaming immigrants or blaming other countries or blaming Washington and seeing it as broken and needs to be fixed. Some of it is, uh, is natural human nature and fear and some of it's fair. Uh, Back then, you had an economy whose rules and regulations were designed for a prior era or the post-Civil War Reconstruction era. And today, you have uh, many policies that were built between 20 and 50 years ago trying to govern the economy of the future. In the Gilded Age, the frustration with the income inequality and everything that you talked about led to political reforms, market reforms, and social reforms. 
What parallels do you see there to today? There was trust busting. There was prohibition in some ways. There was 16th Amendment, the direct election of senators, all those kinds of things. What parallels do you see between those social movements and what might be happening now? Well, let's be crystal clear. I'm not suggesting we need prohibition again. (laughs) Thank God. Yeah. Um, I think there are significant parallels. You're absolutely right. The the way the populism uh, was channeled was into real reforms and populism became the progressive era. Women got the right to vote, direct election to senators, banning corporate contributions. There are many aspects of today's both economy and politics that are broken. You think about the economy. We're operating with a telecom act that was written before the internet was really cooking. You have tax policy written in 1986. You have infrastructure policy built on the Eisenhower era roads. You have entitlement policies that were designed originally when there were 15 retirees for every one worker and the retiree on average lived about five years. The systems that we have in place aren't prepared. Then you have the political problems where we have the gridlock that we have all the time uh, and you have uh, people representing districts that just see the world so radically differently. You know, less gerrymandering, although that's a problem, but Dave Wasserman of the Cook Political Report makes clear that 20 percent of the problem of these uh, rabid districts are redistricting, gerrymandering, and 80 percent are what they call social sorting, of people living near people who ideologically agree with them, reading newspapers and sharing them online with people who agree with them, watching TV if you're liberal MSNBC or CNN and if you're conservative uh, Fox News and you're having your biases confirmed and reinforced. You talk about economic issues vying with social concerns, that politics has become a two-front war between the inside versus the outside and the right versus the left. Can you unpack that a little bit? So so it has felt like uh, politics was left versus right and, and uh, folks perceived many of the Obama campaigns as being uh, much more about identity politics. And when you think about things like global engagement, I mean, McConnell was a globalist and President Obama was a globalist. He was a little less so as a candidate in 08, but as a president, he surely was. You know, both very much operated within the accepted confines of, of the way the system is and was and believed organizations like Goldman Sachs were inherently good and that uh, America leading the world was necessary that was left versus right. And while that's still there on, on identity politics, you see it on issues like race and on immigration, we're now finding the culture war is competing with a class war. And you heard it from the Pat Buchanan's of the world and, and the, some of the Democrats like uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, but it's now becoming mainstream in for sure the Democratic Party and increasingly the Republican Party questioning trade. The president campaigned and said we need to increase taxes on the rich. The class war has joined the culture war, both in the progressive era and potentially today. It could realign the political parties. Obviously, the million-dollar question is, how does it end? And I know that's probably too big a question to chew. So let's talk about what you're watching. You're very, very plugged in. You kind of have said that Congress is unlikely to do anything more than it must. You've been saying that for a while now, and you've been right every time that Congress hasn't really gone farther than what it absolutely must accomplish. What do you see getting done over the next year? I think it's important to start with the understanding that almost every Republican and almost every Democrat rank-and-file member wants to get more done. And they understand the founders built a system that requires compromise, and they're ready and willing and able to compromise. Uh, The politics that we have, and at the top, the leadership, um, makes it difficult, less because they're not compromisers and more because to stay on top of the tiger, you have to keep feeding it. And so it's very difficult to get 
the really big ticket things done. You go back, that said, you go back in 2015 and there was an extraordinarily large number of accomplishments that were just below the radar from things like the dock fix to trade promotion authority being extended to the longest highway bill since 1998 uh, to space commercialization legislation. I think there will be opportunities below the headlines to continue to have lawmakers work together and to look to build problem-solver caucuses and coalitions that solve the medium and small problems. As for the really big problems, I think they'll get tax reform done. It will probably not be 1986-style comprehensive permanent reform. It will probably be smaller, maybe just tax cuts. It's always easier to cut taxes than it is to pay for it. The climate is different today than it was in 1986. When you talk to people outside of Washington who are watching what's going on, what's their biggest concern and what's your biggest concern about? At the moment, my biggest concern personally is North Korea. You know, it's it's hard to see that ending well and there's a lot of ways that it ends poorly. So that's just, that's really scary because the uh, impact could be tens of millions of lives. Um, around the world, the, the greatest concern is opacity. They don't know how to read the United States anymore. Once upon a time, you could predict Republicans and you could predict Democrats and you kind of knew where policies and politics were going. Um, and uh, these days, it's unclear whether the president is going to build a new Republican Party that's fundamentally economic nationalism or whether he's going to be a more traditional uh, right-of-center Republican. The vice president is sort of the classic example, very conservative man who ran his state as a very conservative uh, Republican runs a state. The president is seemingly fighting both the culture war and the class war at the same time. What's interesting about that is his ability to succeed, as, as his former advisor Steve Bannon claims. Steve Bannon liked to say that let the Democrats fight identity politics every day and he'll work economic nationalism and he'll win. What's interesting is the core challenge for the president politically is to try to grow his base. He's got this core of, of uh, people who voted for him. You know, I call him the fifth Avenue Republicans, the people he made that comment about. He could go out on Fifth Avenue, and it's true. It's 98 percent support for the president among people who voted for him in the primary. And that's great, but it's not going to be sufficient in 2020. And so Reagan found the Reagan Democrats, and Bill Clinton found independents and some Republicans willing to support him, and both had massive reelections. For the president to succeed, he's going to need to gain Democratic and independent voters' enthusiasm. And the challenge is he could probably pick a lot of them up on these, on these economic policy class wars. But as long as the culture war is concurrently raising, it's going to be very hard to gain the support of registered Democrats and independents. As you write in your PowerPoint presentation, one of the great unknowns is are, are pivots truly possible in this Twitter world where maybe you talk about economic nationalism one day, but then the next day you're back to fighting the culture war and back to square one. Yeah, it's fair to say uh, message discipline has not been the hallmark of the uh, of the White House so far. But uh, they've also been very successful at using Twitter to reach and, and motivate lots of people. So do you think the deal with Chuck and Nancy, is that a sign of things to come? Do you think there's going to be more of those kinds of deals or is it is there going to be too much blowback from the base? So the irony, James, is which base are we talking about? Right. Fair, because fair. Uh, I think the president may have more latitude to cut deals than uh, than Nancy Pelosi has to cut deals. Sure. And you saw that DACA conference where um, she's working really hard to keep people who have lived in this country almost their whole lives, who deserve to be in this country, who only know this country. She wants to have them not kicked out of the country. And she got beat up at, a, uh, at, a, at an event in her own district because she wasn't pushing for uh, citizenship, which is, you know, which that's a tough putt. 
I do think there'll be more Chuck, Nancy, and the president deals. I don't believe that that's going to be the way it goes all the time. Um, but I believe in the case of that last deal, the president uh, had dealt well with Hurricane Harvey. He saw Hurricane Irma coming, and he concluded it was more important to be uh, a president focused on the disasters than a president focused on maneuvering for a debt ceiling showdown. Uh, and then the the positive media feedback from so many sides that this was a good deal and good on you for, for not playing the traditional politics is something he will look to emulate. That was Bruce Melman speaking to me yesterday on the lessons from the Gilded Age for today. You can get the link to his full presentation at WashingtonPost.com daily 202. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.